Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 411th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Channel. Broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles, California. This is the place where entertainment and technology intersect. Please take a minute tomorrow, no matter where in the world you are, you might be listening to this program, and remember the victims of 9-11, the 2,996 people including 412 first responders that were killed and the 6,000-plus who were injured and the nearly 2,000 survivors who have subsequently been diagnosed with cancer. This atrocity 18 years ago, I think we all remember watching that incredible day unfold. Well, it claimed the lives of people from 90 countries. So it's just not just an American atrocity, it's a global atrocity. And the increase in white supremacy in the US is absolutely appalling. And it seems to be condoned by the US government, but it's high time to dial down hate speech and racism. And every single one of us can do our bit, but we have to do it. We have to get off our asses and go out and actively work against hate speech and racism. Of course, no doubt you've also seen the tragic images coming out of the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. Try putting yourself in their position for a minute. They've lost absolutely everything. In many cases, that includes family members. Their jobs have been destroyed. Their homes have been destroyed. Everything they own has been destroyed. There's no power. There's no water. There are no toilets. It's an appalling situation. So let's all give what we can, whether it's a dollar or $10 or 100 if you can afford it. It will all, every dime will make a huge difference. So pick up your phone and call the Red Cross, 1-800-HELP-NOW. These people will really greatly appreciate it. Now, my late wife died from metastatic breast cancer, so I have a heightened interest in any new medical developments. And, of course, this headline caught my eye this week. The headline read, New Treatment Removes All Metastatic Breast Cancer Tumours. Well, as we know, that um, metastatic breast cancer spreads. When my wife was diagnosed, she had brain tumours and she had um, cancer of the spine and the kidneys and the liver and everywhere. And it seems that T cells extracted from a tumour, when expanded and then reintroduced into the body, have resulted in the disappearance of tumour in a woman with metastatic breast cancer. Research published in Nature magazine by scientists at the National Cancer Institute 
have described a new immunotherapy approach (laughs) which led to the complete disappearance of tumours in a woman with advanced metastatic breast cancer who only had a couple of months to live. The findings show how naturally occurring tumour infiltrating lymphocytes were extracted from the patient's tumour, grown outside of her body to dramatically boost their numbers and then injected back into the patient to tackle the cancer. The patient had previously received several treatments, including hormone therapies and chemotherapy, but nothing had stopped the cancer progressing. After the treatment, all of the patient's tumours disappeared, and 22 months later, she is still in remission. I don't know how many of you have watched somebody go through chemotherapy chemotherapy we used to go through four times a week it was hideous and cruel researchers are particularly enthusiastic about the potential of this method method to treat a group of cancers termed common (laughs) epithelial cancers which include those of the colon rectum pancreas breast and lung together accounting for 90 percent of 90 percent of all deaths due to cancer in america that's around 540,000 people dying annually, most from metastatic disease. So while they grew about 90 billion cells for the patient, the patient was also treated with PD-1 blocking immunotherapy agent, Keytruda, to modify the immune system so that other immune cells wouldn't interfere with the TILs when they were infused back into the patient. So they're developing patients' own lymphoblasts into treatments. They are natural T cells. They're not genetically engineered. This is highly personalized treatment. And the metastatic breast cancer patient is not the only person to have been successfully treated using this method. Impressive results have also been attained in an additional three different types of metastatic cancer, colorectal, bile duct, and cervical. And these treatments have the potential to treat patients with any form of cancer. Now, these results are undoubtedly extremely promising, especially due to the low levels of toxicity patients have experienced compared to conventional chemotherapies. If larger trials support these excellent preliminary results, producing individualized T-cell therapies for each patient is undoubtedly a logical and technological challenge requiring special laboratories and expertise. But the question is, how practical is it to produce a completely personalized therapy for each patient? But having said that, very rarely do entirely new methods of treating cancer enter the fray with such dramatic results as those shown for TILs in these cases. What is needed now are the results from the larger scale clinical trials now underway and continual monitoring of patients who have been successfully treated to ensure their cancers do not relapse. It is very promising and it could be an incredible breakthrough and make such a difference to so many people's lives. Do you get my um, daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 
30 seconds to a minute and a half to read every day and we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to things like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, cryptocurrency, etc. Tomorrow's newsletter is about the follow-on from the enormous success of plant-based meat products like Beyond Meat and Impossible and plant-based fish products that reported a better-for-you alternative that won't contain toxic metals like mercury, microplastics or other contaminants that would otherwise be in fish and will help reverse the adverse effects overfishing caused on our oceans. The one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is a Bob Pritchard newsletter. To receive it, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. Now, Amazon's engineers, they never stop working that lot. They're quietly testing scanners that can identify an individual human hand as a way to ring up a store's purchase. So no more getting credit cards out of your wallet or even using your phone. You just put out your hand and it reads your palm and pays your bill. Pretty cool. And um, the goal is to roll them out as initially at its whole food supermarket chain in the coming months. And the scanner uses computer vision and depth geometry And it doesn't require consumers to physically touch it. You just wave your hand in front of it. So this computer vision and depth geometry processes and identifies the shape and size of each hand before charging the credit card. The system, codenamed Orville, Orville, where did they come up with that from? And that'll allow customers with Amazon Prime accounts to scan their hands at the store and link them to their credit or debit card. It's accurate to within one ten thousandth of a percent, but Amazon's engineers are scrambling to improve it to a millionth of one percent by its launch. So while a regular credit card transaction typically typically takes between three and four seconds, Amazon's new technology can process the charge in less than 300 milliseconds. Retailers have always been interested in faster checkout. You only have to walk into Whole Foods to see the massive lines of people waiting to check out with their very expensive product. I don't know if any of you shop at Whole Foods, but it is so much more expensive than everywhere else. It's a big friction point. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure whether they spend why they spend tens of millions of dollars trying to process check out faster than three seconds. Three seconds to me does not sound like a long time to wait in a line. And if it's going to take 300 milliseconds, what are you saving? Two and a half seconds, two two and three quarter seconds. Nothing. Anyway, if successful, the technology could help encourage consumers to spend more when they visit Whole Foods. People spend tend to spend more when they don't have to touch something like money or even credit cards. It doesn't seem like you're spending anything. And so people spend more. So the launch of this biometric payment method could mark Amazon's first formal step into the in-store payments technology. 
and could preface a greater push in this area. Amazon's a long-time player in the payment space with Amazon Pay, but now be, may be turning its attention in-store. And if this um, scanning payment method seems successful, they could look to license it to all other physical retailers. Wow. The e-tailer could bundle this offering with omni-channel sales management tools like those offered by Shopify or aspects of its Amazon Go technology, and that could immediately make it a major player in the in-store payment space. At Amazon's budding change of Go conveniences that they launched last year, customers use a phone app to check in at the turnstile. They can then register their bags and carry them out without ever passing a register, thanks to computer vision and an array of sensors that are all over the store. With the new hand-based tech, shoppers won't even have to bring their phones. So you just walk in, wave your hands in front of the scanner, and your credit card's automatically debited. That's pretty cool, I think. Countries with robust, robust surveillance programs like China They already use biometric checkouts in stores and Amazon appears to have made a decision to not use facial recognition. I think facial recognition is a bit too imposing, isn't it? You think, oh, geez, I really don't want to have my mugshot taken every time I buy something. But your hand, who gives us stuff? Consumers should avoid giving up their biometric data anytime because if a company gets hacked, it can take six or more years for consumers to unwind the, da- the data theft. It can take you forever to unwind it. Now, my guest today is Barry James Folsom. And Barry's got over 40 years of executive management and strategic marketing experience with a successful track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category leaders. He's got a fantastic, he builds companies from zero to hero in almost no time at all. Now, this is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with my guest, Barry James Folsom, in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, this is the interview segment of the show where we we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting and some of the most successful business people. We talk about what they do, what's made them successful, and we talk about their challenges, how they overcame them, and uh, what we try to do is find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, you read through a resume and you you say, wow, that person's got fantastic credentials, but it's nice just to um, get behind that resume and find out what it is that really drives them. And the reason this segment's so important is because it's really, not even really, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. You know, we know that the failure rate of businesses today is about 95%. Um, So out of every 100 people who start a business, 95 of them don't succeed. So we need to get all the help that we can. And that's why I urge you constantly to go out, get mentors. And mentors are not people next door or your cousin or your friend. Mentors are people that have been out there, been successful and know how the world works because there's a big difference between sitting in a college or sitting in a little office and inventing things and then going out into the real world and see what happens and the pressures that are on you. So you need to take on board all the advice that you can get um, and then build on that. Now, Barry James Folson has over 40 years, it's a long time, isn't it, 40 years, of executive management and strategic marketing experience, and he's got an unbelievable track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category leaders. Um, People call him the Silicon Valley tech guru. uh, His CV is incredible. So I'm only going to touch on a couple of his accomplishments in this intro. Um, we'll talk about more when um, when I'm talking with him. But Barry's played pivotal roles in the creation of four major market categories, PCs, workstations, internet data centers, and web conferencing. He's the chief enabler at at Grow to $50 million, a strategic marketing growth consulting firm. I don't know why he doesn't hire me as a consultant. I must have a talk to him about that. Now, Barry was a strategic advisor to the CEO of Motorola's Home Mobility Solutions and served on the Corporate Marketing Council, Microsoft Motorola Partnership Board, and was executive sponsor for strategic relationships with Sony, Google, Yahoo, Sling, Sony, ABC Pictures, ABC Disney, NBC, and you know that's an incredible roster of companies. I mean, it's the who's who of companies, and um, Barry's been right in the middle of all of these. At Exodus Communications, he drove a singular focus on internet data centers, reducing the sales cycle by fifty percent increasing sales close rate to 100%, and he grew sales 400% in seven months. He was president of Spectrum Holobyte, an electronics entertainment company, which grew in one year from 13 million to 70 million. 
He was a Sun executive during his four-year hypergrowth period, which took it from $100 million to $1.7 billion. So just to sum that little bit up, Barry James Folsom really knows how to build businesses and profits, and that's a skill that very few people have been able to master. And I'm proud to say that he's a, a good friend of mine. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob, and that was a great introduction. I really appreciate it. You're being heard all around the world today, so um, as you always are, be good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> now, you started your career in the early PC days, dating back around 1980s or so, and you've been the CEO of public and private companies in Silicon Valley. How do you, and, and you talk about turning companies around using unfair advantages. What the hell are unfair advantages? I thought unfair advantages when you went and burnt down your competitor's factory. Well, that is <laughs> the old way of doing it, I guess. <laughs> but fortunately, as you indicated, uh, mentoring is a key aspect of helping young entrepreneurs grow, and I was very fortunate that I had some mentors along my path. They included John Doerr, Vino Koshla, John Scully, yep. and Regis McKenna, and I was very fortunate when I was CEO of Radius to have Regis on my board. He also was a mentor to another CEO of a company in, in Silicon Valley, Apple, and we Steve and I both learned from Regis about the strategic advantage of marketing and how important it is in creating those unfair advantages. Part of that, of course, is creating uh, your brand value proposition. And as we'll discuss in a little bit here, it's it, most young entrepreneurs keep trying to add features or capabilities to a product and they think they'll increase sales and that stuff. Yeah. And what I learned a long time ago is counterintuitive that by focusing on building the best product, you will not win market share and you will not achieve the maximum cash flow in your market segment. I agree. Couldn't agree more. You've got to have a great product, not the best product, a great product, and marketing, which is not valued by most young entrepreneurs, is the determinant that determines whether you gain market share and, more importantly, cash flow share in the marketplace. Yeah, that's true. I think it's important to point out here, you know, I, um, I speak on similar things to you. Um, I think what's important is that um, I emphasize when I present that brand awareness means nothing. It's the equity you have in your brand. You just called it brand whatever it is. But the equity that you have in your brand is what's important. I mean, millions of people heard of Kodak. Millions of people have heard of Saab. 99.9% .9 awareness for both of them, and they're both broke. So just because somebody knows who you are doesn't mean that you're going to penetrate. Yeah, and that's why I call it is part of my playbook, one of the four pillars of that playbook. I call it Big M Marketing. Right. Where the M stands for gaining margin dollars. Most people mistakenly think 
that marketing is PR and advertising and a little bit into social media, but it's really about the customer journey. Yep. And if you don't start understanding your customer journey and who is the target persona you're focusing on and going into the detail, how is your service or product helping them achieve a goal they have and measuring in your key and only KPI are your target personas achieving their goals? Right. And it's not about them necessarily using your product or service. That's not customer success. Customer success is they got a bonus and they got a raise in a B2B sense. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There was a study released not that long ago by PW PricewaterhouseCoopers um, that showed that today, um, in contribution to business growth, and to profitability, the customer service, great customer service, putting that in the broad term, not just in would you like fries with that type of term, but in the broad term, customer service is twice as important as adding new products or new features. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to change your vocabulary slightly there. Uh, And I'm going to, it's the customer journey, not just the customer support and service. Yeah. It's customer journey and when's the have you mapped out and change your point of view to be customer centric have you mapped out every touch point that the customer has to go through from their journey about discovering you yep all the way through and how long it takes them both in elapsed time and total energy they expend using your product or service to achieve the end point, which is achieve their goal. Yeah, just just touching on touch points for a minute. Um, I think it's important for listeners to realise, uh, and I talk to clients about how many touch points do you have with a customer, and uh, they usually say, "Oh, there's three or four. I think when you sit down and look at it. Um, you could have 10 or 12 or 14 because a person coming out to repair a piece of equipment or your delivery guy, they're they're all touch points. Every time somebody phones the office or goes onto the website, they're all touch points. So you've got to make every one of those a memorable experience for the customer, right? Absolutely. And you got to map those out. And what you have in an organization, there's not any single individual responsible directly for all those touch points. And therefore, you've got the fiefdoms in your company, even though it may be small, only focused on their aspect of that and not working across function to say the reason they arrived here is because another touch point brought them over here. Right. And, and, and what are we doing to do that? One of the interesting things that I did when I was early in my career, I made the development team's bonus solely focused on how many support calls we got. The less support calls we got, and by the way, I made sure the 800 number was on the product. Right. So you could see it so they they could call. And the less calls we got, the higher their bonus. And it was amazing the cultural change that happened when the first year they didn't get much of a bonus. The next year, they, they exceeded it by over 100%. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And that is the feedback mechanism and the measurement systems that get you the right cultural behaviors. 
yeah, yeah, I agree. So besides adding features, um, what are other ways that companies can gain an unfair advantage? And the good thing, yeah. of course, the good thing about this is that most companies don't even consider this stuff, and yet it is right. the difference between success and failure. Yeah. So here's the key here. There are two parts to anybody, and I'm talking more from a tech product perspective, but right. you can apply it other places. There is the early part, and part of this is only two industries that call their customers users, the pharmaceutical industry and the computer industry. Right. And the first part, to get somebody, quote, hooked on using your product or service, could be an economic buyer from B2B perspective as well as the user hooked, right. or B2C, just they're both the same target persona, all the way through to six months later, are they addicted to your product or service? And if you took it away, like if I took your smartphone away from you, you would do me bodily harm. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happens is we are all linear in our thinking, and you've got to become non-linear in your thinking, and you've got to tease out what is the found value that addicts people. And what I've found over the years that the found value, if, even if you discover what it is accidentally or not, is not a reason that initially from a tech perspective hooks people and it gets cut from the feature 1.0 list. You cut out the thing that's going to addict them to your product or service because it doesn't help you to hook them. Okay, so I'm listening to this, and I've got a, I've got a business, and um, I say to them, um, you know, identify your found value. Um, what do they do? How do they start? What, what's yeah, the process? It's, real, it's, it's really straightforward, but they've got to change a few uh, perspectives here. Part of it is changing their point of view. They've got to identify who really is their target persona user and what are the psychographic aspects of that. Yep. So uh, in your case, you're B2B, so you've got business people, and they're trying to achieve something in their business, and they're measuring themselves and getting a promotion on, on ROI. So you go talk to – you go get some of them together – you don't share with them your product or service. You actually give them a keyword to tease out of them their unarticulated needs. Right. Everybody will tell you what they want. Most people will not tell you what they need because they're not conscious of it. So you yep. sit there for an hour to a 90-minute session, and you coax out of them the insight to what their need is. So I'll give you a quick example that we did at Motorola in the IoT segment back when I was in there, 2004-2005. We looked at, from a home security perspective, and you think about, oh, we had these features that if your home gets robbed and the TV gets taken, that the feature we add is that the TV is replaced by Best Buy and delivered, and you get a check for the broken window that's being repaired, and all that's there before you even get home. That's the feature we're putting in home security. Right. Well, we did a co-creation group. Rather than sharing those features, we, we teased out of them what they wanted, and here's what we discovered, that the mothers who are professional women who aren't at home when the kids come home 
Those kids are called latchkey kids. Yep. Right? And yep. no mother brags that she has a latchkey kid, but what she wants the kid to know is whether the house is safe to enter or not. Yep. So by making the house safe to enter, the kid can go in there and also tell the mom that the kid's in the house. And fortunately, we were doing it Motorola feature phones, so we were going to add the features to the phone of letting the kid know, sell more phones as well, that the house was safe to enter from our home security perspective and the mom to know the kid was home. Right. Rather than getting a TV set delivered. Yeah. Yeah, I understand Let me tell you, that found value, if you took that away from that professional woman, that mother, she would do you bodily harm. (laughs) Okay. Now, so if... I've got a company and I've identified um, four separate target markets and I have four different, um, presumably, channels to reach those people. So am I looking for different um, unfair advantages in each of those segments? Let me guess and no. Uh, the yep. first question I'll ask is, what size company are you? And if you are a Fortune 50 company like Motorola with those four things you want to go after, I'm going to give you one answer. But more than likely, you are a small, uh, young company with anywhere from one to 25 employees. Yep. And this is counterintuitive, but you want to let go of three of those market segments and only focus on one and go after a sub-segment initially. And the reason is, even you think about a Fortune 50 company like Motorola was with over 100,000 people, if they're even 5% effective, they have 10 times more person hours per week than you do with 25 people. It's not your network, it's not your capabilities, it's not your experience, it's not your skills, it's that you don't have enough person hours during the week to go after four. And since you don't don't have enough hours, you never go deep in any of those. I'll give you a quick example of a company I helped out. They were in the disaster recovery area. They backed up all the PCs and servers and business. I took a quick look at their sales, and 54% of their sales was in legal. The next biggest segment was 9%, and that was finance. Right. So it was clear for legal. So I got them to focus only on legal, and since we only focus on legal, I spent an hour as the marketing head, and I found a list of the budget dollars for all legal IT people prioritized, So I knew how to change our messaging to gain the unfair advantage of shifting dollars that were the the higher priority list to be spent by IT and shift those dollars to be spent on our product. And those were our meta competitors. So we started closing sales because I changed all the messaging. We didn't change the product. I just changed how we message. And I stole from the legal industry, their term that what we delivered was business continuity. Right. Is that is that environment changing with all the um, te- technological assistance um, or tools that you can get now that can 
um, very effectively track all your marketing channels, your marketing messages, all of those things can be instantly tracked and, and worked on. Or does it say, um, in, in the old days, even five years ago, um, you couldn't target perhaps more than one target segment. But has that changed now with all the technology that gives you instant dashboard feedback? Yeah, no, it doesn't. And let me tell you why. Because if you're going after four, you have not changed your point of view to be customer-centric, so you're touting it in your language and the way you speak, not in the language of the business people, if you're a B2B, yep. or if you're a consumer, in their language. So you've got to actually translate. If you're going after four segments, you've got to translate into four different business or consumer languages depending on those four markets, right? Yep, yep. And, 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 and so I tell you, you've got to translate. You say, I don't have time to do that. Exactly. You're small. You don't have enough person hours. But if you focus on one, you can change every message on your website into the language because you listen to your target persona and how they speak and what vocabulary words they're used. And remember, from a B2B perspective, you are educating the person who is your champion to overcome the naysayers in the company. Yeah. And if you burden them with translating your speak into their speak, they give up. Because if your competitor has the unfair advantage of putting their website into their speak, then they'll just represent that company and land the business for them. There's another way you gain unfair advantage. So I'll give you one last part about the data. So for this company, it was disaster recovery. My tagline was uh, recover fast, rest easy. Good one. Nice. And after I left, they changed it to recover fast, recover fully. Yeah. But, but they did the data on the messaging. Yep. <laughs> and then they switched it back. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. I can believe it. Because, you know... Um, You've you've got to develop a rapport with the customer, and the only way you do that is by giving them what they want, not what you want to achieve. Yeah, let me let me let me hit you on your vocabulary, <laughs> and I'm going to do two things here. It's not what they want. You got to hit them with what they need, so yep. that you get them addicted, and, and you got to tease out that need. And I'm gonna I, I keep trying to change words on you, and I'm gonna give you one more example that's very important for your audience here. Many of them are familiar, not all of them. But many of them are familiar with the terms product market fit. Yep. And MVP. Don't share this with anybody else. Keep this to yourself. But if you change these these two phrases to something else, it will make all the difference in the world to your chance of success, and it gives you an unfair advantage. It's market, product, fit. Market becomes before product. Yep. MVP stands for minimum viable product. Yes. How arrogant the development team is that they are the determinants of whether the product is viable and therefore can be shipped. Change those words to minimum Valuable product. Right. MVP is minimum valuable product. Who determines whether it's valuable? Your target persona. Sure. It's a huge cultural change. Are you letting development determine what is 
you're offering, or are you letting your target persona and you're delivering the minimum valuable product? Right. Now, if you are delivering the minimum valuable product versus the competitor delivering the minimum viable product, you have an unfair advantage. I agree. I agree. So now I'm, I'm sitting out there listening to this, and I think, okay, so I've, I've got to really understand my target market. Um, I know who they are. What do I need to really know about them? What are the most important things I need to know about my target market? Uh, if you're B2B, you have the economic buyer, and then you have the users. If you're B2C, unless you're selling men's shoes, your target market is women, because 80% of all consumer purchases in the United States is determined directly or indirectly by women. Yeah. Okay? Not men, women. It so, is in our house. <laughs> yes. So what you've got to do, you've got to go, so in the business case, you've got two sets consumer case one set, you need to go listen to a minimum of seven of them across the country, and ideally a, a total of 33, and you can put them in, in, in group sessions to do this where you have five of them or seven of them at one time, yep. teasing out of them and listening to them, and then out of that set, you create your own, your own target persona advisory board, have five or six of them that you meet with on a monthly basis and keep updating them and listening to them. Right. And remember, you are not, with these sessions, talking. Your lips are sealed. You're not allowed to talk. You're only allowed to listen and ask questions. And I'll give you the last key. When you're listening sessions, someone will say something you relate to and it reinforces what you think. Pause. Ask the first why, because when you ask a why, you get the rationale and the knowledge sure. behind that. Sure. Yeah. Here's the trick. After you get that answer, ask the second why. And that's when the gems come out. Right. I understand that. Okay. Um, so let's move on to big M marketing. So what does that mean? Well, it stands for margin dollars, and what, I, what I'm saying about that is it's, it's strategic marketing. You want to create new categories, and, and you want to, you know, you talked about burning down uh, your competition early on. What you want to do is create it so that you choke off customers going to, the, to your competitors. Yeah. Right. And I call that denying oxygen to them. And part of the way of doing that is you build up an ecosystem around your offering. Right. Okay. Okay. And you know, out of out of the fifty marketing weapons they are, you've got to build what I call your economic model, not your business model, your economic model. Do the sensitivity analysis. It's based on how much cash flow you create with all the assumptions you have. And determine which are the two or three key variables that make the most difference in generating cash. So I'll give you yeah. a quick example. Uh, was working on a uh, social TV site, and we had people signing up through Facebook. And all we did all the numbers. We forecasted the customers' behaviors 
not only did we forecast our revenue, we forecasted their behaviors and measured our forecast against their actual behaviors. No one does that. It gives you the insights. And then we were able to determine it wasn't the initial churn we had to focus on. It was actually we weren't as viral. We weren't getting as much viral as we thought, word of mouth out of it. So we focused our development on increasing being more viral. Right. And that actually lowers your customer acquisition cost. And since we were measuring how much word of mouth we were generating, and we weren't generating much, we fixed that and started generating a lot of word of mouth. Our customer acquisition costs came down, and our cash flow went through the roof. Right. And after all, being successful in business, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who um, have a business or have a retail store, and you say, how's business? And they say, yeah, we're, we're quite successful, and all they're actually doing is making wages or losing money. Um, and in the end, being successful is about making money. It's about making a profit, um, and that comes down to generating more cash flow than your competitors um, with better margins. So how do you – what do you focus on? Your The volume of cash flow, which I guess chokes off your competitor, or um, increasing margins and profit, not worrying so much about cash flow? Well, you've got – that's a hard question to answer, answer without more context. Right. right? Cause yeah, no, I understand that. Different criteria there. So That's why I asked company, you. <laughs> what, what I look for is you, you want to be focusing on getting people addicted and focus on generating what I call advocacy word of mouth for people using your product or service. Right. And what do I mean by advocacy word of mouth? Advocacy means that they're they're posting you on Facebook, or they they see you and meet you, and they say, "Hey, I I just started using this product or service. You need to use it." That's advocacy. The other kind of word of mouth is if I'm asked, "What phone do I use?" I will tell you. Advocacy word of mouth is I'm in your face telling you you need to switch to the same phone I use. Right. right. And so, what are you doing? Where in your discussion with marketing and sales and with development are you talking about what do you need to have in your product or service that leads to advocacy word of mouth where people are pushing on people to, to buy or uh, use your product or service? Right. We're running a bit short of time, but um, in the final item in your playbook is a strategic f- uh, framework. What's that? Yeah. The strategic framework is all about the important aspects of the, the mission statement, your core value proposition, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you kind of your why you're, you're doing this and what your culture is and making sure the culture is supporting this and not getting in the way, and it's also understanding the strategic architecture. I'm coming more from a tech product perspective here, of strategic architecture. So you've got a long-term roadmap that's laid out. It may be evolving, and you're you're changing it on a daily basis. That's okay, but you've got it laid out at least three years of key capabilities you need. Right. 
so that as they are building the underlying architecture of your product, they aren't precluding you from doing other things later. And a short version of the story, I worked as CEO of a place where the founders came out of Xerox Park, had never built a program, much less a product. They didn't know about internationalization. Yep. And it costs you nothing when you do internationalization. Translation costs you money, but they didn't do they didn't structure it as internationalizable. So it was a million dollar bill to go back and redo all the code architecturally to make it internationally, which would have been free if they if, if they knew at that time. Right. So I can't tell you how many tech startups have had to rewrite their products because they didn't get the strategic framework right of their architecture and you go to the end and work your way backwards again it's another nonlinear technique so part of what I do is help them do a little dive on their architecture to make sure that they're not shortchanging themselves that it allows them as the trunk to allow them add branches as they as they build out okay so I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking this Barry James, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, how do I get in touch with you? It's real simple. There's two ways. Uh, it's uh, email is Barry James at grow p o five zero m dot com. Grow to fifty million dot com, and my phone number is six five zero four hundred zero six hundred. I don't know why we're not working together. I'm sitting here thinking, why aren't I working with this guy? Um, Barry James Folsom, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you, go, if you go to Google and look up Barry James Folsom, there are a plethora of articles and stories about Barry James. So have a look. It'll be well worth your while. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 411th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business. Being broadcast today from Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. For those of you who aren't in either Los Angeles or Phoenix, where the our radio network's located, it is bloody hot. <laughs> really hot. We've had a couple of weeks of absolutely boiling hot weather. So if you're relaxing in a nice, comfortable 70 or 80 degrees, enjoy it for us. Now, Under Armour was a very popular Sportswear, shares fell 15% last week following the announcement of poor second quarter earnings. 
and they also announced that they expect sales to decline in North America throughout 2019. So while Nike and Adidas are posting positive sales growth numbers year after year after year after year, Under Armour has spluttered. I don't. I quite like Under Armour stuff, but Under Armour wasn't always the trouble-stricken brand that it's become today. It once was poised to overtake the sportswear market from its rise to a once $15 billion athletic apparel empire and its eventual slow decline. I want to give you the complete story of Under Armour so far. Kevin Plank, a team captain on the University of Maryland football team, wanted to design athletic wear that could withstand sweat and intense activity. So he founded Under Armour in 1996 and designed the first prototype that year. He sold his merchandise from his grandmother's basement. I love these stories from his grandmother's basement. Before he made major deals with Georgia Institute of Technology and North Carolina State University. Plank sent prototypes to contacts in the NFL to spread the word. And eventually, a number of NFL stars bought some shirts and Under Armour made the jump from college to professional. In 2004, sales exceeded 200 million and Plank took the company public in 2005, raising 157 million in the IPO. Endorsements and media attention were running hot and helped the brand solidify among the titans of sport and athletic wear. In 2010, the company got a shot in the arm when it signed an endorsement deal with the legendary quarterback Tom Brady. Under Armour began to include women in its advertisements and endorsements, and in 2014, the company signed Tom Brady's wife, Giselle, and featured ballerina Misty Copeland in an advertisement that went viral. So they were doing really well at that point. Under Armour bought Matt My Fitness in 2013 for $150 million. Then they bought Endomondo for $85 million. And they splashed out again and bought My Fitness Pell for $475 million. So that's $800 million odd they spent. And the acquisitions of fitness and health-focused apps and technology were an effort to expand its digital offering. Under Armour experienced a setback in 2014 when the suits it designed for the US speed skating team were blamed for slowing down some Olympic skaters. (laughs) That's not good. So... The US speed skating team was slowed down. I meant to check how well they did that year, but I didn't. The same year, Under Armour became the second best-selling sportswear brand in the US. They snuck past Adidas, but they were still a long way behind Nike. In 2016, 
Under Armour introduced its first smart shoe with a built-in sensor which stored and tracked data. So your shoe actually became a little computer. It also announced that it would become the official supplier of uniforms for Major League Baseball. So big step up, official supplier of uniforms to Major League Baseball. Now they're in the big league. In 2017, the company introduced sleepwear to help speed up the body's recovery process. That's pretty cool. It was a turning point for Under Armour. The company's stock fell more than 40%. It reported its first quarterly loss ever, and five top executives left the company. So 2017 was not a good year. In addition, Plank also upset many customers when he praised President Trump, calling him a real asset for the company that sent sales south. In 2018, athletes at UCLA refused to wear Under Armour's shoes, complaining that the bottoms were falling off, (laughs) which is also not good. And that was a deal worth $280 million with UCLA. Ouch. So Under Armour had $1.3 billion in leftover merchandise, shrinking popularity among teens, and a scandal involving executives going to strip clubs as a company expense. So Under Armour got hit from every side, and then they announced a number of layoffs. In 2019, Under Armour backed out of its agreement with Major League Baseball to supply uniforms. Uncertainty quickly returned. Both sales and shares fell, and in September, Under Armour announced a new North American president. Never a good sign. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge... You're taking up way too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to succeed get past you. It's easier and it's more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. You'll never know how amazing you can be by pushing the envelope. Bite bite off more than you can chew. Chew like hell. It's amazing what you can succeed. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. So don't forget, 1-800-HELP-NOW. Give whatever you can to help the people of the Bahamas. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from my wonderful hometown of Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.